You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. God our Saviour, teach us to stand on the truth of your Gospel so that we might be a church of love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith, through Christ our Lord. Amen. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm pretty excited this week. I'm pretty excited about next week in particular. But actually, it's pretty amazing, next week, Cross and Crown will be exactly one year old. Next week, yes, that's right, that's the right way to react, Jeremy, thank you, we'll be celebrating our church's very first anniversary. It's all a bit hard to believe, because actually in 2018, I remember we started off with just a small group of 25 people on our launch team. We met in my parents' house, and I remember the very first person I asked, hey, do you want to join this team and do something crazy for the gospel? I asked Noonvid, and he asked, oh, okay, who, who else is on the team? And I'm like... It's just me at that point, and then person by person, we've actually been seeing God's hand and His kindness bless us as He's grown our family. You know, we can talk about um, numbers and growth and all of that, but you know the thing that's really worth thanking God for? The thing that's really worth thanking God for is that He's saved people. He's brought people to faith for the very first time, and He's brought people who grew up in church, who may have never understood the gospel, He's brought them home. He's brought them home, and that's absolutely amazing. Just the other day, Josh was telling me, I looked, he was like, I looked at the prospectus and the documents from 2018 in terms of the church that we want to be. And we planted this church with hopes and dreams. We planted it with plans and prayers for what we might be and who we might reach. And as we thank God for his first year of absolutely amazing grace, we now look to our second year, we now look to our future asking, what sort of church do we want to be? What, what exactly do we want this family to look like? What's going to define our life together as the family of God? You know what? We, we aren't the first church to have ever been planted, right? There's a lot of other churches. Actually, every church started off as a church plant. And all the way back in Acts chapter 19, another church was planted, another church was planted, but it wasn't planted in Melbourne, Australia. It was planted in a city called Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. And you've got to understand, this church was planted with great expectations. Their, their evangelism, it was so successful, so good, they did so much damage for the gospel that it even threatened to bankrupt the local economy. You know, so many people were coming to Jesus at that point in time that the idol factories in Ephesus were like, well, what are we going to do? And so they rioted. I mean, that's a, that's a goal for, 20, for 2020, isn't it? Preach in such a way that enough people will come to faith that the local economy riots against Jesus. By any measure, that church, like, they were doing well. And they were planted with great expectation. Reality can always be a bit of a different story, can't it? Because a few years pass since that church launched, and reality is now a very different situation. Not everything is as it should be. In fact, 
everything is going wrong. False teachers are now derailing this once promising church. That the gospel is being distorted and the church which was once full of promise is now full of problems. So the Apostle Paul, what does he do? He, he takes his right-hand man, Timothy, and he sends him to clean up the mess. He sends Timothy not just to fix the problems, but to actually shape and mold this church into everything that it should be. Everything that God intended for it to be. And so Paul writes this letter with one key purpose. One key purpose. To show us what the church should look like. To show us what the church should look like. That's, that's the big picture of this whole letter. Chapter 3, verse 15. How people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. And over the next nine weeks, each Sunday, we're going to see a different angle of that big picture. So, as we step into our second year of church life, as we think about what sort of church family we want to be, what a great letter for us to preach through. What a wonderful letter to show us what it means for this to be the family of God. Not that long ago, I was speaking with a friend. And this friend of mine is an unmarried woman in her mid-40s. And she very honestly shared with me the pain of her loneliness. She, she said to me, Adam, look, I'm mostly okay, but ever so occasionally I, I grieve the loss of children I never had. I grieve the loss of children I never had. And then she paused. And she looked at me and said, but you know what? In my church, God has actually given me so many other children. And whenever I feel all alone, I thank God for the family that he's given me. And isn't that beautiful? It's amazing, actually. Just look now at what Paul calls Timothy in verse 2. My true son in the faith. My true son in the faith. I wonder, can you hear the intimacy in Paul's voice? I mean, Paul, he was probably a widowed man. He had no biological children of his own. And over here, Timothy, well, he was a half Jew and half Greek. And that meant that everyone in society would have looked at him as if he were illegitimate. And yet, here is Paul calling Timothy not my adopted kid, not my foster child, but my true son in the faith. I remember growing up, my family would often remind me, Adam, don't forget that blood is thicker than water. Blood is thicker than water. Your friends, they'll fail you. But you're only your family, only we will stand by you. Your family matters more than anyone else. I wonder if that sounds at all familiar. Well, I think Paul wants to say, blood may be thicker than water but the Spirit is thicker than blood. The deepest bond that you and I can enjoy is with one another. It's not actually with our families bonded by blood. It's actually with our family joined by faith. You might find it hard to believe, but this family, that the church, this is where we find real belonging and our true identity. And this is the family that God has saved us into. 
notice. That's why in verse 1, God is called our Savior. And in verse 2, He is the Father. You see, the only way that you and I get into this family is by God saving us into it. We get into this family by being saved through Christ Jesus, our Lord. We get into God's family through God. We, we believe and then we belong. And we can't truly belong unless we first believe. You see, the church is God's family. You'd expect then, right? This should be defined by God. You'd expect it to be devoted to God, committed to God, trusting in God. That's why in chapter 3, verse 16, this is how Paul defines the church. He defines the church by the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness. I wonder what you hear or understand when you hear that word, godliness. See, when he says godliness, he's not talking about goodliness. He's not talking about being good. It's not like he's thrown in an extra invisible O in there somewhere. No, being a Christian isn't about living a morally good enough life to get into heaven. It's about living a godly life. It's about being saved by God to then live for God. And in this letter of 1 Timothy, we're going to see a multifaceted picture of what a godly family, what God's family should look like. We're going to see what our family should look like. You see, as we look to that second year, this book is going to set our priorities. And we're going to see today that we are a family defined by gospel truth. A family defined by gospel truth. And Paul is calling us this day to do three things. Here they are. Number one, defend the truth. Number two, live out the truth. And number three, fight for the truth. Defend the truth. Live out the truth. Fight for the truth. Well, you only ever have to defend what's under attack, right? If I have to defend my home from a bushfire, it's only because the fires threaten my home. Well, Paul is calling Timothy to defend the truth because the truth is under attack. Just look at verse 3. Well, we see that people are teaching false doctrine. They're obsessed with myths and endless genealogies. Now, in one sense, these people aren't outright contradicting the gospel. They're not like the heretics that the circumcision party who are adding works to the gospel of faith. But they are attacking the gospel. And this is how they're doing it. They're attacking the gospel by talking about everything other than the gospel. Do you catch that? They're attacking the gospel by talking about everything other than the gospel. You know, they say you can spoil the gospel by addition, by adding something to it. Or you can spoil the gospel by subtraction, by taking something away from it. But I wonder whether the slow, subtle, but sure way of spoiling the gospel is by disproportion, by distraction, by talking about everything other than what is most important. Not talking about sin not talking about judgment, not talking about the cross, and not talking about forgiveness. You see, these people here in 1 Timothy, they're, they're the conspiracy theorists of their day. They're talking about every, absolutely everything that means absolutely nothing. These are the people who try to figure out when's the rapture going to happen? 
Who's the Antichrist? They're the people who try to find the devil in absolutely everything and reduce the amazing work of God to helping them find a car park instead of saving them out of sin. Might not be inherently bad, but for Paul, all of this, just empty speculation. Pointless, absolutely pointless. Verse 4 says that it has nothing to do with the big picture. It has nothing to do with God's plan. And the church, you and I, we are the model of God's master plan for this world. We are the model of God's master plan for this world. When I was in primary school, I remember a house was being renovated. I remember, I knew that it was going to happen, but I didn't know when exactly it was going to happen. So I went to school one day, life was normal, and I came home, and oh my gosh, I looked at my backyard, and it was like a war zone. The lawn had been dug up, branches were strewn everywhere, and broken pieces of pottery just littered our yard. Now, for for an eight-year-old boy, I had no idea what was going on. Like, what's happened to my house? Until my parents showed me a model of our new home. A picture of what our new backyard would soon look like. They showed me a model of the master plan. Well, that's what we're meant to be. That's what the church is meant to be. See, you and I, we're supposed to be a picture of the world to come. Just imagine that. This right here is a picture of eternity. And the truth of the gospel is our blueprint The church is is defined by gospel truth, and you and I are a model of God's master plan for this world. Can I tell you, when I saw the model of what our house would one day look like, I thought, eh, not really worth it. But when I look at the model of God's master plan for this world, can I tell you, the picture is stunning. If you want to see what it looks like, look at verse 5. Now, the goal of our instruction is love. Love. That comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. You see, that's what the church is to look like. Not, Not just the truth by itself, but no, truth that leads to love. Love that comes from a pure heart, a heart that loves what God loves. Love that comes from a good conscience, a a mind that has been transformed by God's Word to know what is pleasing to Him. And a love that comes from a sincere faith, a life of integrity that is consistent with the gospel it proclaims. I wonder if that sounds familiar. We're going to be a church, a model that knows, loves, and lives for Jesus. A church defined by gospel truth will display gospel love. But these people in 1 Timothy, no, they're not holding on to the truth. They're departing from it. They are like a plane that has turned off its radar, veered off its flight path, and are heading straight for collision. And the worst part is, they are taking the whole church with them. You see, these people, they're they're obsessed, right? They're obsessed with the minor details of the law. 
They're obsessed with the Old Testament, and the Old Testament's great. I love it. But here's the problem. They're obsessed with it for all the wrong reasons. Not, not as God's word, but as fodder for their crazy, whack-job conspiracy theories. Instead of being defined by the truth, they're actually abusing it. So Paul now says in verse 8 that the law is good. It's good, but provided one uses it legitimately. You see, the Old Testament, in fact, the whole Bible, it's not just true. It's fundamentally good. But only if we use it as intended. And it's intended to show us our need. It's intended to show us our need. Look at verse 9. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious. Just stop there for a moment. Read that one more time. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless. How in the world can the law be good for the lawless? All it would do is convict us, wouldn't it? And then in verses 9 to 11, we all get a little bit uncomfortable because we then get a shopping list of sins that reflect the Ten Commandments. Now, you might look at this list and think, oh, those who kill their fathers and mothers? Not me. Murderers? Not me. The sexually immoral? Okay, sort of not me. But look at how Paul ends this list. Look at how he ends it. And for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel, whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel. You see, friends, this list, it represents us all. It shows that all of us, without fail, without exception, we are sinners condemned by the law. You see, the law is good because it shows us our need. The truth is loving because it reveals our problem. It exposes our sin and helps us see that you and I need saving. You see, if you and I, if we're desperately sick, how unloving must our doctor be to not tell us? If our friend is standing on the tracks and a train is coming for her, how unloving must we be to not warn her? No, true love loves truth. True love loves truth. It shows that we're sick and, and it gives us the cure. It shows us and it points out the oncoming train and provides us a way out. It's easy, right? It's easy to understand why a lot of churches don't want to talk about what matters most. That heaven and hell are real. The time is short and Jesus is returning. We often say something like this. It's not very nice though, is it? It's not nice to say this stuff. But if I can be a bit honest, right? Like, nice has never saved anyone. The Bible isn't nice. The Bible is true. It is good. And it is loving. And that's why here at Cross and Crown, we value preaching the Bible. Because the law is good. The word is good. The gospel is good. And the truth is good. My gosh, we, we defend the truth of the gospel, not because it's easy. My gosh, it's really hard. We stand on it. We defend it because it's right and because it's good. We need to defend the truth and we need to live out 
the truth. You know, for Paul, the man who wrote this letter, this gospel truth is not just theoretical. It's not just abstract. It's not just in a textbook somewhere. No, it's deeply personal. Because that gospel truth defines his story. It defines his life. It's his pretty much his biography. And in verses 12 to 17, he uses his story to show, us that, to show that that same truth defines our story as well. You see, Paul, he might be the, apostles to the Gen- apostle to the Gentiles here, but he wasn't always that, was he? He wasn't always that. In verse 13, we're told that he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. Paul, he might love the church in Ephesus today, but it wasn't that long ago that he was ravaging the church in Judea. Back in Acts chapter 8, we get a backstory to Paul's life, and we see that he would enter house after house, dragging off Christian men and women and putting them in prison. You see, we often miss this, right? We think, oh, Paul, he wrote most of the New Testament, must be a great God, the guy and was always that way, but not so. Paul was actually something of the ISIS of his day persecuting, jailing, and even stoning Christians to death throughout the Middle East. My gosh, you'd be hard-pressed to find a greater sinner than Paul. I mean, verses 15 and 16 quite literally says that I was the worst of sinners, the chief of sinners. And yet, and yet, I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul, he he doesn't just defend the truth of the gospel. No, he loves it because he lives it. If you're not a Christian, I wonder what you think Christianity is all about. What do you think? If someone walked up to you and go, hey, dude, what, what is Christianity all about? What would you say? Maybe harder question if you are a Christian, right? Your non-Christian friend walks up to you. Hey, what's Christianity all about? What does it mean to be a Christian? What do you say? Maybe you say, well, it's about living a good enough life to get to heaven, sort of. And you're like, cool, cool, cool. No, I don't think so. Or that's all about signing up to a list of ideas and a way of life. Not so. If you want to know what Christianity is really all about, Paul has the answer right here in verse 15. Right here. So what he says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, which is code for, listen up. This is the main point. If you want to know the truth, this is it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What is a Christian? A sinner saved by Christ. What is the church? A family of sinners saved by Christ. That's the truth. That's what Christianity is all about. For Paul, the truth of the gospel that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners is the story of his life. And friends, can I say, not just of his but all of ours also. You see, what's true of Paul is true of us all, isn't it? It's true of us all who have placed our faith in Jesus. Why did Paul receive God's mercy? Why? Well, verse 16 tells us, 
So that in me, in Paul, the worst of them, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might demonstrate, here it is, his extraordinary patience. Isn't that beautiful? His extraordinary patience as an example to all those who would believe in him for eternal life. Can you hear what Paul is saying? That the law is good because it shows us our sin. And the gospel truth is this, that no matter how deep your sin, his mercy is more. This is what he says. You think your sin's bad. Gosh, look at my life. Name your worst sin and I'll raise you one. If Jesus could save a sinner like me, you bet that he can save a sinner like you. You might look at your unbelieving family and friends and just despair. You might think to yourself, look, I know that God is capable of all things, but he can save anyone, but he, he really hasn't met my mum, right? Like, that, that's just a, that, that's a whole other case altogether. But he saved Paul, didn't he? He saved you, didn't he? He saved me, didn't he? I wonder if the world looks at us like we look at Paul. Because if the church is the model of God's master plan for this world, are you and I, are we also an example of God's extraordinary patience? When the world looks at us, I wonder, what do they see? What do they see? Ask yourself that question. When, when your friends look at you, what do they see? I hope they don't see our perfection. Because A, well, we can't be perfect. But B, that's also not what we're supposed to demonstrate. When the world looks at the church, they shouldn't see our perfection, but they're going to be sorely disappointed. No, they should see God's extraordinary patience. They should look at our family and go, oh my gosh, what a group of sinners. And imperfect people with broken lives, with nothing held together, who don't deserve a shred of goodness. And then they should also see my gosh, these are sinners saved by Christ. They are undeserving recipients of mercy. They should look at us like we look at Paul. They should say to themselves, my gosh, I've got a chance. Because if God could save them, he can save me too. They should look at us and even before hearing the truth from our, from our lips, they should be able to see it in our lives that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like us, sinners like them and a sinner like me the church is the gospel made visible my gosh what an amazing truth what what a beautiful truth what a saving truth and i wonder how uh, if you really get that in your bloodstream how could you not join with paul in praising god for his overflowing grace and extraordinary patience Normally we get a doxology, a hymn of praise like this at the end of the letter, right? But Paul just can't help himself right at chapter 1. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And whilst I'm still here, let me write another five chapters. He is so gripped by the gospel that he cannot help but break out in praise. Friends, defend the truth. Live out the truth and fight for the truth. Paul charges us in verse 18, I love it, right? Fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience. 
Hold on to the gospel. Cling to the truth. And when the pressure's on and the world caves in around you, stay your course. Don't give up on the gospel. Don't stop preaching the Bible. Don't stop standing on the truth. Because that truth, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, my gosh, is the only hope for this world, isn't it? That's why Paul calls Jesus our hope in verse 1, because without a saviour, there can be no salvation, and without salvation, there can be no hope. I mean, why in the world would we ever want to give up on a truth so good? Don't be like Hymenaeus. Don't be like Alexander, who rejected the gospel and shipwrecked their faith. They changed course. They diverted their flight path. And look at what happened to them. Eight years ago, an Italian cruise liner was sailing around the Mediterranean Sea. It was the 13th of January, 2012. And the Costa Concordia set sail at about 7.18 in the evening. On board, there were over 1,000 crew members and over 3,000 passengers. It was several hours into her journey. And the Costa Concordia was approaching Giglio Island. And then, at 9.12pm, the captain made a decision. A decision that would change everything. He decided to deviate from his planned course. And just 33 minutes later, the Costa Concordia, it struck a rock and it ripped a 53-meter tear in its port side. And it wasn't long before that ship began to sink. That day, 64 people were injured and 33 people died, all because of one decision, because the captain deviated from his route. He did not hold the line. He did not stay his course. He did not keep his charge. Friends, as we enter our second year of life together as a church family, what are our hopes? What are our dreams? What are the things that you would love for this family to do? What are the things that you would love this family to be? Well, for whatever might come our way, and for however we might answer that question, Paul is calling us, be defined by gospel truth. Be defined by gospel truth, because when we are defined by gospel truth, we will display gospel love. We will, according to verse 19, have faith and a good conscience. So, brothers and sisters, members of this family, whatever comes our way this year, fight the good fight. Hold on to the gospel. Cling to the truth. Stay your course. Let me pray. God, our Savior, teach us to stand on the truth of your gospel so that we might be a church of love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith through Christ our Lord. Amen.